Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing information warfare and how our U.S. legal requirements leave us vulnerable. My guest today is Dr. Jill Goldenzeel. Dr. Goldenzeel is Associate Professor of International Law and International Relations at Marine Corps University's Command and Staff College. There, she teaches international law, the law of war, and national security. She's also an affiliated scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's Fox Leadership International Program. Dr. Goldenzeel's scholarship focuses on international law, U.S. and comparative constitutional law, human rights, refugees and migration, information warfare, and law and religion. She's currently working on a book on how the politicization of refugee crises threatens national security, as well as several projects on the use of law as a weapon of war. Her work has appeared in the American Journal of International Law, Virginia Journal of International Law, University of Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law, Arizona State Law Journal, Berkeley Journal of International Law, Chicago Journal of International Law, and the American Journal of Comparative Law, among other scholarly journals, which tells me that you spent a lot of time in front of a computer. (laughs) Dr. Goldenzeel, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Becky. It's a pleasure to be here and to have the chance to sit down with you. Absolutely. Before we start our discussion of information warfare, tell us a little bit about your background working with the Marine Corps. What brought you to the Command and Staff College? How long have you been there? This is my fourth year teaching at Command and Staff, and I came here largely because one of my closest friends in graduate school was a Marine captain who had deployed four times in Iraq, and he had come to graduate school at Harvard in 2006 right after leaving a combat tour. And he totally changed the way that I thought about the military, which was not that I, to say that I had a lot of preconceived notions about the military, but the way he talked about it was different than I ever expected. He talked about how the nation building work that he did was the most important work that he would ever do in his life, and how the sense of brotherhood was such that he thought about going back when his commanding officer called, even though it was then at the height of the Iraqi Civil War. And so when this job posting for a job at Command and Staff College came out, I thought, wow, I've always wanted to be an academic whose scholarship had an impact in the real world. But this is a chance to do it in my teaching every single day. And here I am, and I get to do it, and it has been a wild ride. I had no military background <laughs> other than other than my friend in graduate school and an old running buddy from high school, but it's it's been a wonderful deep dive. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a happy faculty overall because yes. we know that every day we get to go to work and we get to help make professionals better at at their profession, and it is incredibly rewarding. I've heard other universities described as a bunch of independent contractors with a common grievance over parking, and this is exactly <laughs> the opposite of that. We are a team. Well, there, I, I've heard some grievances over parking, too. <laughs> well, we compete for parking. So. <laughs> So now, you recently wrote an article with Manal Shima in the University of Pennsylvania's Journal for Constitutional Law. I understand there's a pressy of it that is available through the Krulak Center's website yes. here on the MCU website. And in that article, you explore the challenges of both protecting free speech and privacy, core American values, while simultaneously protecting the U.S. from information warfare attacks. What brought you to this topic? I was reading an article in the Washington Post one Sunday, and... It was about how Washington really delayed in combating Russian disinformation campaigns. And it talked about a State Department program to find 
people that were being targeted by Russian trolls who were targeting them with fake news. And the State Department had wanted to counter this false speech with true speech. And State Department lawyers quashed this program because the Privacy Act of 1974 prohibited the State Department from accessing the First Amendment data of Americans. And these are tweets we're talking about. So these are publicly available information for the most part. And yet the State Department still could not use it to target Russian disinformation campaigns. And I thought, well, this seems nuts. This seems crazy based on everything I know about a constitutional lawyer. It certainly bothers me as a national security professional. But our whole First Amendment doctrine is based on this idea of countering false speech with true speech. And so if our government can't do exactly what our First Amendment doctrine says we should be doing, then the marketplace of ideas is not functioning as it's supposed to. And that's the whole foundation of what much of our constitutional jurisprudence is based on. So, of course, as an academic, I then said, this is fascinating. I need to write an article about it. And... I had a wonderful research assistant at the University of Virginia who is going to be a Navy JAG, Manal Chima, and she did such a good job as a research assistant that eventually I asked her if she would co-author the article with me, and 84 pages and 400 and some footnotes later, here we are. <laughs> we were uh, talking before we started recording this podcast that the beauty of, of law review or law journal articles is that... Half the page is footnote. So don't hear 84 pages and say, I'm not going to read that. It's much more reasonable than that. You'll have an entire page of footnotes. It's the beauty of, of the law journal way. There's also a three-page executive summary on the BKIC website. So Perfect. Much more digestible. So your article notes that the importance of the, the public square in our understanding of free speech and the vulnerability we face in the internet era. Two questions. One, what is the public square? I mean, that that sounds nice, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> but then also, how does the fact that we communicate online now and social media, how does that change our understanding of the public square? The Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment is based on the idea of a public square and a marketplace of ideas. So the idea is very much just what it sounds like. A speaker would walk into a marketplace, get on a soapbox, talk, and then his or her ideas would be heard. And then another speaker would come and speak and talk, and everybody in the marketplace would be able to listen to those ideas, and eventually the truth and the best ideas would win out. The Supreme Court has based a lot of its jurisprudence, a lot of its First Amendment jurisprudence, on this idea of the public square. The problem is that it doesn't apply well to the internet. The Supreme Court has called the internet the new public square, and it did so at a time before social media has taken off, I think, in the way that it really has today. And it doesn't account for the way that social media actually works. Social media has distinct characteristics that distort free speech, that distort the way that free speech would work in the public square. So first of all, there's just too much information. There's more information than one person could take in at any given time being fired at you at any particular time in the, in the social media environment. The Russian doctrine of disinformation is based on this idea of a fire hose of falsehoods. It's just that speakers and listeners are being hit with a fire hose every time they're in a public square right now. And then 
speakers can target listeners in ways that they couldn't before. It's also less possible for listeners to identify the source of the speech than it used to be. So the relationship between the speaker and the audience is fundamentally changed on the internet in a way that it's not in a regular public sphere. And this changes how the First Amendment actually applies. A lot of uh, Supreme Court doctrine, as I keep mentioning, is premised on the idea that true speech should be used to counter false speech. But there's actually been a lot of evidence that on social in the social media context, counter speech doesn't work right. so far. So if that's true, well, then what does that mean for how we're supposed to combat this false speech that's harming our political system, causing electoral interference or causing public disturbances in the U.S.? So that's really interesting. One, because of this premise that it seems that the public square or the marketplace of ideas, that there is this underlying assumption that one's free speech would be truthful and Mm -hmm. that if it weren't to be truthful, there would be some mechanism and that would be the exchange, that public exchange, that would help expose the falsehood or the the disinformation or maybe just the misunderstanding or misperception. I find uh, a lot of times in conversations with people, they're not intentionally trying to mislead. They themselves have misunderstood something and they're just parroting something that they had heard without any sort of a malicious intent. It is interesting the way that social media is set up or the internet in general, that it is both connecting and isolating. So it's it's not necessarily a public square in the sense of this idealized version, yeah. maybe that, that constitutional lawyers have talked about it or the Supreme Court has considered it, yeah. that you actually are in relationship in community exchanging ideas. It is I'm on my phone or I'm sitting in front of my laptop and I don't know who you are or where you are, but these ideas are coming out. And I've even noticed now even even more respectable news outlets will publish articles without a date stamp on it. And so you won't know if the article that has whatever incendiary information from whatever part of the globe, yeah. if that happened yesterday or if that happened five years ago or 20 years, you don't know because the the date even is gone and the author is sometimes removed and it's just information that's out there. Well, that's another problem, actually, because the Supreme Court has also tried to apply its doctrine related to traditional media to social media as well. And we don't have the same journalistic standards the line between who is a journalist and who is a blogger is blurring day by day, too. I mean, we expect papers of record, New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, whatever, to have the byline and to have a date at the top. And now it's becoming less common. It's also true that we have traditional newspapers that have websites, and then they have blogs, and then they have listservs. And so the line between well, first of all, what is a paper of record and then what is not? What is there something related to that? And who is a journalist that is schooled in particular ethical codes and who is not is also blurring day by day. The function that you mentioned about connecting people is also interesting because that's one of the reasons that the Supreme Court in the first place likened the internet to the new public square, because it's, it's the internet does have a very democratizing function, right? Anybody can post something out there, and in theory, anybody can make it go viral. And I think many of us really loved that in the early days of the internet, but now what we're seeing is 
certain actors and in what we're talking about today, adversaries of the United States, exploiting that free speech and free information environment to be able to target people with a firehood of falsehoods and then see what happens. And our own laws, the U.S.'s own laws, paradoxically, constrain us from fighting back. So tease out the legal constraints Mm -hmm. a bit more. What specifically is preventing us from shutting down an IP address or a website or blocking? We see Twitter does this all the time, and and you t- they, they will block channels that violate a user agreement. Why can't we counteract fake news or trolls in this way? So there's a there's a few issues there. So first of all. Corporations have free speech rights, so there are limits to our ability to regulate what they can do and what those corporations can require in terms in their terms of service. So there's limitations on what the U.S. government can do that might infringe upon the free speech rights of those corporations. We can encourage them to self-regulate or require them to self-regulate legally, but we get into some touchy First Amendment ground there, especially because... We also have laws against censorship. And if so, if the US is requiring Twitter or Facebook to regulate its users or modify its terms of service in a certain way, then that starts to become a question of okay, well, is the US censoring the speech of Twitter or Facebook? And even if Twitter or Facebook is doing it, quote unquote, voluntarily, you can't see my air quotes on the podcast, but what does that really mean? Is Big Brother watching everybody on Twitter or Facebook? If I were a Twitter or Facebook user, and I am, I would start to get a little wary of that. Another problem is that the Privacy Act and other Cold War surveillance laws don't allow the collection of data relating to U.S. persons' First Amendment activities. And when I say U.S. persons, I'm talking about U.S. citizens and also people with green cards as well. And These acts include an exception for law enforcement, but not for national security, which is what gets in the way of a whole-of-government approach to combating information warfare. So that's what happened with the State Department program, right? So the State Department was not a law enforcement agency, so they were not able to collect First Amendment data, collect tweets, say, for example, that in order to conduct their counter disinformation campaign, or I like to say combat information warfare, because it's, there's fewer negatives in there. This is a this is a problem, not just for the State Department, but because any agency that is not a law enforcement actor does not fall under this exception to the Privacy Act and can't collect information relating to Americans' First Amendment activities. But not only that, the Privacy Act has some pretty tough restrictions, even for law enforcement agencies. And this is good, right? As an American, I like my privacy rights protected. But uh, as an American who uh, doesn't like disinformation campaigns, and as a national security professional, I want the US government to be able to move quickly. And there are complications even for law enforcement agencies to be able to move quickly because of our legal restrictions in the Privacy Act. Yeah, so tease those out for me a little bit. So one section of the paper talks about First Amendment protections Mm -hmm. and the challenges that we have with countering information warfare attack or or having a good defensive posture because of First Amendment protections. But talk a little bit more about what specifically in the Privacy Act or about privacy protections make it difficult. The simple way of putting it is that some agencies can access records that others cannot. And in particular, 
these laws are of particular interest to this audience. Many of these laws were enacted to keep the U.S. military from acting domestically to spy on its own citizens. So if we want a whole-of-government approach to countering information warfare, and we have the CIA able to look at some records, but DOD not able to access some records, and the State Department not being able to access records at all, and the military being able to access records domestically, but somebody is emailing somebody within the United States on a server that is somebody from Russia is emailing um, somebody on a server within the United States, and that person is actually located in Cancun or somewhere, all of this gets incredibly legally complicated. And we have these laws that are great laws. I mean, I'm a big fan of privacy and the First Amendment, but designed to protect American civil liberties that at the same time make it really difficult in the modern context to fight the kind of information war we're in now. So what do we do? How do we better position ourselves to both protect ourselves against information warfare attack, disinformation, fake news, and frankly, on the on the continuum of information warfare, fake news disinformation is problematic, but it's probably even less problematic than some some of the other things that are going on, right? But how do we better position ourselves uh, with respect to information warfare without sacrificing these two core tenets that we have for our democracy of First Amendment protections and privacy? So we, we proceed carefully, very carefully. And that's because we've made tremendous mistakes before at times when we've needed to balance national security and civil liberties. And at times of a national security crisis, we go into hyper alert mode as a nation. We say, okay, well, we need to do everything we need can possibly do to protect American citizens. And that's a time when we are often most likely as a public to let some constitutional liberties go by the wayside. And that's how we got something like the Patriot Act, which needed to be revised and revised and revised and revised over again. And it's still very controversial because of the balance that it struck between national security and, and civil liberties. Some people think it went too far. Some people think it didn't go far enough. We're looking at a situation like that again here. So... Manal and I argue in our article that we do need new statutory fixes. We do need new regulation. We need to enact laws to allow the prosecution of people who make reckless false speech with the intent to undermine the integrity of the electoral process or suppress the vote. So that's a lot. And immediately when I present this before academic audiences or really any audience, people get upset when I say this because they say, this is going to go too far. Prosecuting people who make reckless false speech, well, you could very easily put up a sarcastic tweet on Facebook or something about the about the election or a parody of a political candidate, and this could be taken the wrong way. And we argue that this is a really high bar that we're setting, and it can be difficult to understand this if you're not familiar with criminal law. Because the standard of recklessness and the standard of intent that would be necessary for a prosecutor to prove is extremely high. And we're limiting the offense to undermining the integrity of the electoral process or the intent to suppress the vote. So for a prosecutor to prove that that speech is made with the intent to do those two things, undermine the integrity of the electoral process or suppress the vote, is challenging. 
And yet still, uh, then the counter to that is, okay, well, do you think anybody will actually get prosecuted under this? Well, yes, we think this would cause some deterrence, but also that there have been cases that have come up, at least anecdotally in the news, where there are individuals that could have been prosecuted under such a standard. We also talk about reforming surveillance laws to allow for a narrowly tailored national security exception for law enforcement agencies to be able to access Americans' First Amendment data with appropriate safeguards for civil liberties as well. So we talk about warrant processes. We talk about expedited warrant processes like those used in other national security contexts that might be appropriate to protect civil liberties and also enable the government to move as quickly as they need to to respond to information warfare threats. And then we talk about regulating actors or encouraging self-regulation. And as I was talking about before, this needs to be done with caution because we can't have the U.S. being big brother over Facebook and Facebook being big brother over Facebook users. However, we can, as the U.S. government, encourage online platforms and social media outlets to self-regulate in accordance with constitutional principles. So educate their users about disinformation that's out there. Ask them to help self-police each other. Ask them to register and regulate bots. Regulate online paid political ads on their platforms. There are things that these companies can do that would help the U.S. government fight information warfare, but that also may be a win-win because social media users, particularly these days, are concerned about being on platforms where they feel that their speech is safe and where they feel safe from being targeted by trolls and by disinformation campaigns. So if people want to learn more about this facet of information warfare, the intersection of law, civil liberties, and information warfare, where can they look? Besides our 401 footnotes... (laughs) Manel and I have another article coming out in the University of Maryland Law Review on lessons that Congress can learn from FISA to create the type of legislation that we are talking about for combating disinformation campaigns. And also, I'm a big fan of the blog Lawfare, which Mm -hmm. comes out of the Brookings Institution. And um, I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to keep up with the twists and turns of law and disinformation campaigns. Excellent. And information warfare. And I'll put in a plug for Rational Security, which yes. is the, their podcast, which yes, is absolutely. phenomenal. And completely coincidentally, but only by a, what is the six degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of a phenomenon, we share the same producer as Rational Security, ah. Jim Paget Howell. Well, they are well produced. So. They are. <laughs> I'll be listening to them on the way home. So last question. What are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? And I use reading lightly. This could be a video. It could be – it doesn't have to be actual text. So these days I'm reading usually a leadership book and a book related to my teaching in law and security studies. So the current leadership book is Susan David's Emotional Agility, which is about how building resilient leaders will lead to better change management in organizations. Hmm. i got to check that out. Yeah, it's, it's good. And she has an amazing TED Talk too and a a fascinating background herself. And the book on law is Tanisha Faisal's The War of Laws. And that is about the unintended consequences of the 1949 Geneva Conventions. And 
for those of you who want to take my elective on <laughs> lawfare, law as a weapon of war, I think you'll be reading more about that soon. Excellent. Well, Dr. Goldenziel, thanks so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, the indomitable Jen Pajahal, and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support of our podcast. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.